Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people with news, views and expert interviews. Coming up on this episode of Constructive Voices, we're heading to the United States to find out about an exciting technology that's saving time and money in big construction projects. Its founder, Renee Morcos, tells us... We are living in the most exciting time in construction you know, since maybe the building of the pyramids and the European cathedrals. And of course, I'll be joined by Pete the Builder to talk about what's happening in the US construction market and construction technology. Constructive Voices, brought to you by Lewis Access, British-made scaffold towers and access products. Hello, I'm Steve Randall. In a moment, an update on a story we covered in the previous episode of Constructive Voices. But as I'm recording this on June the 25th, the news is still unfolding of the collapse of a condominium building near Miami. At least one person dead and many people being searched for by rescue teams. This is a story that the construction industry across the US and across the world will be watching very closely. And our thoughts are with those affected. Now, last time, Henry MacDonald talked to Professor Michael Parkinson from the University of Liverpool. He's an expert on urban regeneration and was telling us about a major riverside project in Liverpool centred around a half a billion pound stadium for Everton Football Club. There's been a development and Henry's been talking to Sir Michael again. UNESCO, over this week, published its recommendation that Liverpool be taken off the World Heritage Site list at a meeting in July in China. 21 UNESCO ambassadors will then decide whether to ratify the recommendation to delete Liverpool, in which case it loses status, or whether it can be given a, a deferral. Liverpool wants UNESCO to defer a decision to come and look again at the city, how much we've done. I think there's really a big risk that UNESCO will say no, you're off the list. So this is the culmination of several years uh, conversation, and we are now in the last chance saloon. It is really a very big moment for the city. And how much is this to do with the new build that's happening down on the riverfront, principally the new Everton Stadium? It's all to do with the North Liverpool docks, which had been derelict for 60 years and where nothing has gone on, you've got two issues. One is the plans of Peel Holdings to develop Liverpool waters, offices and residential. That argument's been going on for several years. UNESCO don't like it. We do. The recent thing is Everton Football Stadium. They had planning permission and government have approved the planning decision to move from Goodison and put a brand new state-of-the-art football stadium on Bramley-Moor Dock, which is at the far end of the site, currently derelict and fronting next to a sewage treatment plant. And UNESCO has now said, we've worried about these tall buildings and densities for years. Everton, they say, is the final straw. And so there's now a risk we'll lose the status. Critics of UNESCO will say, well, hold on a minute. Would you just prefer this part of the city to lie derelict and empty? This is absolutely it. The problem for UNESCO is it can handle monuments and sites where they're not real living cities. Liverpool is a real living city. It had a terrible collapse 30 years ago. It's had a very good renaissance. It isn't completed yet. The North Docks are the worst part of the city. North Liverpool is the worst part of the city. I think Liverpool should say, we have done a huge amount right across the rest of the World Heritage Site to invest over £750 million. We take it seriously. We have done a great deal. Secondly, we don't want to lose the status. It's valuable and valued. Thirdly, we do have to, however, have development in the near north docks. We think we can do this in a way that does not threaten the heritage status. So please, in July, don't confirm the decision. Come to Liverpool, see what we're doing, see what we've done, see what we plan to do, and let's have a grown-up conversation 
so that we can have our development and bring prosperity to the people. We can invest in our heritage, modernize it and bring growth. And you can feel confident that we have respected what you call the outstanding universal value. Constructive voices. So lots to talk about on this episode. And as usual, I'm joined by a builder with many years in the construction business. He runs his own construction company and he's Ireland's favourite TV builder, Peter Finn. Pete, how are you doing? Steve, my man, how are you? Great to talk to you again. Yeah, very good, thanks. You're busy, 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 aren't you, with uh, TV stuff and obviously, you know, the day job too. Yeah, absolutely. We've, uh, we're back recording our, the next series of Home Rescue. So our first show was recorded last week. So I am uh, very tired <laughs> after that, but uh, it was uh, really successful. And the construction industry is on fire at the moment. So lots happening both personally and all around the world, being honest with Steve, there is lots happening in construction all around the world, which is great to hear. And I suppose that's what we're going to drill down on a bit more today, isn't that right? Yeah, absolutely. Because as you mentioned, you know, this is not something that's just happening in this part of the world. Everywhere, construction is huge, whether it's big government projects talking about infrastructure or whether it's just the huge demand for homes, which is crazy. I mean, we're going to talk a bit about the US market, but across the whole of North America, uh, supply is lagging demand in housing, and that's pushing prices up crazily. But, I mean, the U.S. market is is thriving, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. The construction industry around the world is, 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 is going very strong. And I think in the U.S., a bit like what we have here in Ireland as well, there's a huge housing shortage. And uh, obviously, supply and demand, if, if, if there's you know people there looking for houses, there's a huge push towards that. They also have a huge need well, and want as well to improve their infrastructure in the U.S., the population in the world is increasing all the time, and those people need places to live um, across the world, but in particular in the U.S., where they're basically building pretty much new cities. Cities are growing. They're obviously, you know, one of the, the world leaders at, at high rise. So busy, busy market over there, and it's a, the construction industry is a huge part of their overall economy. And we always know, like we hear constantly about, you know, the, the American economy is spoken about globally all the time. And things are changing in the US, but they usually change very quickly in that country. And they, they usually are very reactive and proactive to, um, you know, a changing of the guard. So I think that's another aspect to what's happening over there is that now there's new implementations coming in from the Biden administration, you know. Yeah, and there's so much going on at the same time. Obviously, there's the the rebuild of the economy and the literal rebuild of infrastructure and and homes, as we've said. But then there's the whole thing around the changing demands of the market. You know, there are people who want different types of homes. You know, and this has been driven by the pandemic. You know, there's the whole thing with office buildings and industrial. You know, all of those sort of demands have shifted and were shifting to some degree before the pandemic, but have, that's been accelerated since. And there's also a huge wealth shift, uh, which is starting and is only going to intensify from the older boomers generation who generally hold a lot of wealth. And that's moving down to uh, younger generations. Yeah, I really, like, I have to agree, like, there's there's just so much transition in the world at the moment. Um, like, we're moving so much towards tech. And I know that the construction technologies in the US are really at the top end of, of the market. They, they really are at the top of their game over there. And there's a lot of money invested in that aspect, which basically means people can be living, uh, you know, at all sorts of different levels and earning quite well by working from home and on technological stuff, the old school way of getting up in the morning and having your briefcase or, or your your hard hat under your arm and heading off to work is kind of gone. It's different. Yes, there still is people on the ground. Yes, there still is people going to do their nine to five. Obviously, COVID had changed an awful lot of that. And I think there's still going to be a hangover from that. I think so many people are going to start working from home. I know Facebook have recently said that they're going to allow um, their, their employees work from home and obviously go to the office for a shorter period of time. So there's a lot of that type of stuff happening across the world. And therefore, people's minds are changing. Then people's ways of thinking about how they live are changing. So, you know, coming back to construction on it again, that means that people's homes are going to be different. It means that people are moving from the city and maybe moving a little bit further out to get that lifestyle of being able to live in the country with, with maybe, let's say, a, a bigger footprint of a house. And they're able to still work very close 
to the same capacity, if not the same or even better because they're cutting out this commute time. So, so many things happening and the construction industry is having to keep up with it and having to try and understand it, I suppose, add in the fact that we're all just coming out of this pandemic, add into the fact that there's a shortage of materials um, and all that type of stuff going on. So it's 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 uh, very, very interesting times in construction. And so it's great for people like me and you because that's what we love to talk about, Steve. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the the challenges for the construction industry, and let, let's sort of talk specifically about the U.S., labor shortages, just finding the people to do what was required a couple of years ago. But as we've talked about, you know, that's intensifying. There's more construction demand. Getting the people to do it is an increasing challenge. Yeah, without the shadow of a doubt. So like, I'm actually usually fairly good with figures, but these figures are, are blowing my mind here. I, 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 I hope I'm even going to say them properly. The construction industry in the US is expected to be 100 and 91,000 million. Now, I know that's, you can break that down into billions and maybe into trillions again, but that's what it is. It's 191,000 million alone in the construction sector. Now, large part of that will be infrastructure as well. You've got hospitals, you've got all those type of things being, being thrown into the mix, and then you've got your residential as well. So it's a huge market. Like it's a phenomenally big market. And I suppose. If, if you look at the amount of bodies there are in the world to try and get, throw into that and, and educated and skilled people to get to do that volume of work, it doesn't really add up. So therefore, you know, we've all seen the movie, Steve, but like robotics is coming and Rene from Alice Technologies is going to, he mentions this and this man is in the know. This man is not down the pub having a chat with somebody else and passing on information. He's a Stanford professor and he has said very clearly that Robotics is going to play a major role in construction going forward. And when you listen to our conversation, it's quite obvious it has to happen because we simply do not have the humans available to do it, you know, skilled and trained and, you know, speed wise as well. We're going to just have to accept this. Whenever we talk about stuff like this, um, the first thing that comes into my head is Terminator, you know, the T-1000, they're all coming, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm willing to take them on, but they're a tough old battle, you know, like it's it's starting already. We we are part cyborg because we all walk around with with that smartphone in our hands and you know that that has so much information and we input information into it and it communicates with us all the time. So you know I know uh, people like Elon Musk always say that the humans are already part cyborg and you know when you think about it we we kind of are. So you know we rely on technology so much more and when it comes to construction again it's always adapting, it's always moving, it's always getting faster. And we've done lots of different things throughout the years to increase our speed and to increase our productivity, to increase our profitability. And it's usually the more technology that you use in terms of how you design something, then how you plan it. And now the next thing is how you actually construct it is going to be more reliant on technology. And it already is there. Like there's been models being used by architects, engineers, now that's filtering down further. Like I'm, you know, I see BIM models all the time, even on my own construction um, projects. And like I'm able to look at them and they're 3D images and you can walk through walls, real, real kind of Mission Impossible type stuff, you know. And you can kind of see the full layout of a building, the full skeleton of a building. You can reverse it, look at it from all these different angles. And it's really, really good to be able to see that and do that. And you can do all these clash detections. You can do all these type of things which help prevent errors happening, help reduce the amount of time lost on site, help increase productivity. But then again, when you think about the figures that we discussed there earlier on and the volume that is required, it's pretty unrealistic to expect humans to be able to do it all. So the robotics is definitely going to be a major part of our future. And I think we need to tie in with that sooner rather than later. And I think it's one of those things, if you get on early, maybe you're, you're, you're going to be in a better place. A company called ABB, who are very much involved in robotics and all kinds of uh, of technology, they've done a survey of uh, construction industry CEOs and MDs uh, across the world, and more than four out of five of those uh, respondents say they're planning to introduce robots into their operations. And then it's partly due to the growing skills crisis. But I suppose that's just people in those positions, CEOs and, and you know, people in, in those management positions in large companies in particular, 
like they can see this coming and you know whenever i think of robots on site or whenever i think of robots doing something that normally you, you would associate with a human you always picture the robot with its it's kind of you know it's round head and it's uh you know <laughs> cl- cl- clunky arms and it's kind of walking along like that but like i actually only recently looked at a, at a, a video of of a, a robot it was called a robot, but basically what it was, it was a, it was a truck. It was laying blocks in, in um, Australia. And it, it had like a high-ab arm on the back of a truck is the best way to describe it. So the block truck then came up and fed blocks into this high-ab at the back. And this basically extended arm came out. It was connected uh, to a computer, obviously, in the cab. And it was just laying these blocks out like a conveyor belt was coming down through the arm of the, of the high-ab in the exact position. So... Error was removed. The blocks were able to be laid up to a certain height without any humans being involved. So therefore, it was it was safer. The site was immaculately clean. So there was a, a a whole lot of advantages. And like the word robot didn't really describe what I was looking at. I was looking at, at a truck that had a high up arm on it that was laying the blocks. I know that is a robot when you when you break it down because it's being you know robotics is what's uh, making it perform what it's done or doing, but. It was really, really interesting. It changed my mind. I always had this, I don't know why, maybe it's just my caveman brain, but I, I had always this idea of, you know, robots walking along the scaffold and things like that. Of course, that's not the situation. <laughs> of course, that's not it. Like, ro- the robots aren't going to be going down to local builders providers and buying a trail. Like, th- the reality is, it's just using completely different systems. And you know what? Unfortunately, I have to say it, they're safer, cleaner, more accurate, faster. So, now, at the moment, like anything, it's like when you've got your first smartphone, it probably cost you a fortune, but you were ahead of the time, so you were, you were willing to do it. Nowadays, you can you can buy a smartphone. Like, like, who doesn't have a smartphone is the best way to describe it now. So these things will take time to implement. It is already kind of with us, and it's coming, and I think it's going to start working its way down the chain where we actually see so much more of it on site. And I think we're, we're I suppose we're just going to have to... Um, to accept that we just need to tie in and and and, and get with the get with the uh, the program, you know. There's huge opportunities here for companies in the US to sell to to Europe and to the rest of the world, and vice versa. In the construction sector, there's so many opportunities, and there's so much uh, there's so many spaces there that that people can step into and and can fill these voids. So it's really exciting times, and there's 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 uh, there's a lot still to be played out in this story, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And as you mentioned, uh, we are going to be uh, staying stateside with a Stanford professor talking more about uh, artificial intelligence and and other technology. Uh, Pete, uh, we'll chat again. Well, next time, assuming we haven't been replaced by robots of some sort. Thank you, Steve. It was very good to talk to you. (laughs) I think that was Pete. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers, Steve. Great to talk to you, mate. Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people. Now, technology increasingly plays a part in almost every aspect of our lives, both at home and at work. But what about specifically artificial intelligence or AI? How can that help the construction industry to build bigger, better? We've been finding out more. Phil Carpenter has been speaking to Renee Morcos, who's the CEO and founder of Alice Technologies, and asked him first to explain what ALICE is. ALICE is an acronym that stands for Artificial Intelligence Construction Engineering. And so it is the world's first generative construction simulator. It's a bit of a mouthful, but it's actually pretty simple. And so what that means is it's a tool that enables you to take large projects, put them into the software, and ALICE will generate millions of different ways of building a given project. And she does this by you know, building it with one crane, two cranes, overtime, no overtime, 20 steel crews, 23 steel crews, 25 steel crews, and so on and so forth, going through lots and lots of permutations. And every time you change one of these input variables, Alice propagates that change through the entire system and re-simulates the entire construction project. So you can immediately see the impact that a delay will have or a design change will have or a different type of concrete or a different production rate or whatever it is that you're trying to figure out. That's what Alice is. First system in the world that can do that. If you would, tell us a little bit about your background and, and why you started Alice Technologies. I'm a second-generation civil engineer. So when I, when I graduated high school, my, my dad gave me a, a good piece of advice. He said, you know, son, study anything you want, just don't study civil engineering. So I was like, great, that's it. I didn't know what I want to do with my life before this, but now it's clear to me. 
And so uh, I obviously went and studied civil engineering. Um, I, I've built stuff. I've built stuff around the world, full. Um, you name it, you know, pretty much I've built it. I've done underwater pipelines. I've done $350 million gas refinery in Abu Dhabi. I was in Afghanistan for a year. I always liked building. You know, the, the concept of going somewhere and putting something into reality that didn't exist before and, and that thing being very big and sort of outliving you just always jazzed me. Like that would get me out of bed in the morning. I really liked it. I like coming home with concrete in my hair. I really like building stuff. And so, you know, long story short, I ended up doing a PhD at Stanford. There's kind of these two moments. One was in Afghanistan. I was building these land excerpts for F-16s. And I was trying to figure out a sequence, you know, the people that I had on site. What was the, what was the optimal sequence, right? I'm trying to figure it out. A large slab, you know, probably 23 different pieces in that slab or 24. And, you know, 30 people. And how do you sequence it? And that seemed like a very simple problem. After, you know, doing my PhD, I realized, like, oh, that was actually relatively complicated. You know, and the other thing I started to look at was space usage. And this is kind of an interesting sort of observation. Look at any construction site. Drive down the road, look at a construction site. It's going to be empty. There might be a pocket or two of work, very intense work, but generally the, the, the construction sites are empty. And so I measured in my PhD, we took these photographs on site and measured uh, that on average, 3% of construction site space is used for construction. 3%. So it's like, you know, holy cow, like this is a really low number. Um, other industries have asset utilizations in the order of 50, 60, maybe even 70%. And so started researching how do you increase space usage while avoiding spatial clashes. You don't want people working on top of each other. It's unsafe. And so I started developing these algorithms that would do that and generate options. And, you know, that journey really led me to build Alice, right, which was there's a moment where I suddenly realized, like, wait, these algorithms aren't just optimizing space usage, but they've actually, they're actually building. That was like this big moment for me in my life, right? It was like, like, hold the horses. Like, what the heck? Like, this this algorithm knows how to build. I remember kind of, you know, telling my, like, like, jumping up and down, like, this, this thing knows how to build, you know? <laughs> and it's, which, which I, you know, I was always like, hey, I, 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 I've been doing this for, you know, that point, you know, a good six, seven, maybe eight years, right? But, uh, yeah, and suddenly this, it was, and it's been a really, you know, beautiful journey, right? And I remember thinking at the time, Alice knows how to build. She doesn't know how to build very well. And so, you know, she didn't know how to, you know, model cranes and she didn't understand calendars and she didn't understand labor. She didn't understand consumable or reusable, right? And so we slowly taught her all these little concepts, right, over the last, you know, six years. And sometime around two years ago, we cracked it technically. And that's, when you were doing your, your PhD work, Renee, did you have advisors or colleagues or even fellow students who said, wow, you're onto something like this could be a company? You know, not in the beginning. And that's kind of, I think, the really beautiful thing about it, right? People always say, like, do what you love. Like, I can tell you, Phil, that the first four years, you know, maybe four and a half, five years, like, there was no no inkling that this would ever be useful. I was tinkering around in the lab, and I was happy. I was happy as a clown. I, I was working, you know, sometimes 19, 20, 18 hours a day, seven days a week. I was just futzing around with these like little algorithms, you know. I was like, "Oh, this is so much fun! Like, I can't believe that I I get to just sit here and do this." As a PhD, you know, you obviously you know you don't really earn anything, but you get to kind of just play around with these things. And I that's that was it. I there was a point at which suddenly, you know, my my advisor at Stanford was like, you know, I developed these algorithms, and he said, you know, go validate it with a project manager, you know, and that's a very like Stanford thing. It's got to be sort yeah. of bounded in reality. And so, and I remember saying, but, you know, John, this guy's, this guy's in Amsterdam. And the response was, I don't care if he's on the moon, go validate with the PM. <laughs> so I thought to myself, you know, what the heck? So I called the guys up in Amsterdam and I said, hey, do you want a free week of consulting? Because, you know, I couldn't afford a plane ticket. And they said, yeah, sure. So I said, okay, I just have to talk to Willem, you know, at 4 p.m. on a Friday. So I flew down there and I showed it to Willem. And that, that was the moment. Willem kind of double-checked my work. And that's when it hit me. I was like, my God, this thing, it knows how to build. So when I got back on the plane, flying across the Atlantic, kind of sipping on a Heineken, I'm just like, this algorithm, it knows how to build. So I kind of got back to Stanford, started playing with it. And then I entered this, this Basies competition. It stands for the Business Association of Stanford Entrepreneurial Students. We won this competition. We were voted like the best product coming out of Stanford. You know, And that's kind of when it started to become like, hey, other people think this thing like is really cool. 
yeah, and then suddenly, you know, we, we raised some money and one thing, you know, led to another. And, you know, they say the best companies aren't, you know, founded. They just happen. And that was, you know, definitely the case with Alice. That's a great story. Tell us, Renee, if you could, clearly people were excited about what Alice was doing and what it could become. What specific problems does Alice solve and, and how does it do that? You know, construction has seen a stagnant productivity increase over the last, you know, five decades, six decades, depending on which report you're reading. And what that really means is that the dollar value per hour worked has stayed the same in construction, right? Most people sort of in construction have heard this or know this, right? We're the second least digitized field in the world after agriculture. And so the problem that Alice really solves, I'm going to give you a slightly different twist than what it is, right? It's the world's first theoretical platform Because there's a lot of theory that we've built around it, right, that enables the application of artificial intelligence, machine learning, you know, advanced optimization and other cutting edge, bleeding edge techniques and technologies that other fields have developed to construction. That is one way of viewing Alice. What we've built is a platform that enables unlocking all these other technologies to our field. And so the specific problems that it solves is it enables you to build a construction project 20 or 30 different times before you need to build it. Alternatively, it enables you to build a construction project 20 or 30 different times if there's a delay to find the best one. It's incredibly powerful because let's assume that you're in a project, right? We got called into a project recently, right, that had you know, very serious you know, delays. Right? They're looking at potentially, you know, 12 plus months, right? You know, very substantial liquidated damages, right? And so they're sitting there and I, you know, anybody that has been on those jobs, I have. You know, I was involved in a job where I was a, a site engineer where we're looking at 50,000 euros per day, right? And those jobs get really, really stressful. Every day you wake up, it's 50,000 out the door. Next day is 50,000. Next day is, you know, and imagine that, that instead of you trying to sort of piece together on the fly, because it's, it's, there's a lot of stress, things are moving quickly, your management systems, your, your Primavera, your Microsoft Project, your you know, estimation systems, none of these can update in real time. And that's what this tool does. Instead of saying, okay, well, I'm going to add carpenters, but you realize, oh, well, I added carpenters, but there wasn't enough you know, formwork to su- support the increased carpenters. Or I added a crane, but I didn't have enough steel workers or whatever it is, those interdependencies, right? As you realize down the line that there is an interpen- interdependency that you didn't see, that's what you can do with the tool. Right. You can actually rapidly explore, you know, okay, I've tried six different ways of doing it. You know, okay, let me call a, a site meeting and say, hey, listen, everybody, um, the best way out at this point in time is increasing, you know, the number of whatever it is, road, you know, crews by, you know, six, right? And having them work these three Saturdays. That's the, the fastest way to do it. So Alice uses artificial intelligence to help work its magic. Why do you think that AI is particularly well-suited to solve the problems that Alice addresses? That's a great question. Here's something to think about. Let's assume you have nine columns, right, on a little building, and you're trying to figure out how to sequence them. So there's nine choices for sequencing the first column. There's eight choices for the second, seven choices for the third, six for the fourth, and so on and so forth, right? There's actually 362,000 ways to schedule nine columns, to sequence nine columns, (laughs) right, one at a time. So imagine if you're looking at a large billion-dollar job. Let's assume that you have, you know, three zones, maybe four zones. You're trying to figure out number of crews. Um, Let's assume that you're only looking at, you know, steel uh, uh, structural crews, five types of crews, right? So how many carpenters, how many steel workers, how many masons, um, how many MEP insert crews, right? If you just look at, you know, 1111, 1112, 1113, 4, 5, and so on and so forth. Let's assume you're only looking at four of each. That's four to the power of four. The number of sequences is, is four factorial. The number of cranes. So each one of these options multiplies a number of possible solutions. And so for large projects, you have in the order generally of, you know, a trillion different ways that it could be built. It is not feasible or desirable for a human to have to generate all those options. It's not just that, that it, as a human, you don't have time or you can't crunch in your head, you know, let's say 6 million or, or 60 million different solutions like Alice does, right? But also each one of those, here's a typical example. We were on a job recently that had 5,000 tasks, um, 14 different constraint types, 
calendars, cranes, labor, equipment, materials, and so on and so forth, across 700 days. So 14 times 5,000 times 700. That's the size of the problem that you're asking the human to crunch in their head. So what I'm trying to explain is that the number of constraints that you need to resolve is very large even for one solution. So what humans do is they take shortcuts. Humans are good at gut sense. But as you know, those shortcuts lead to inefficiencies. And so, one, the size of a, a given solution is very large. And so you need AI to crunch it. B, there's lots and lots of solutions. So there's maybe six million of them. And so those are the two reasons that you need AI to kind of crunch this. Wow. So really, before the application of this technology, there's no way that people could have dealt with sort of gaming out this many possible solutions to problems. Yeah, there, there's no way. Really, one of the nice things about Alice is we get to be involved in some of the world's top projects. Largest, most lucrative, you know, NDAs up the wazoo, like just lots and lots of projects. It would be difficult for a site engineer or a project manager to be involved in this many different types of projects, right? And so for us, we really have a good idea of what current practice really is. And I can tell you that I have rarely seen three different scheduling options or three estimation options for a project. You know, folks might have two. I've seen that a few times, but you know, I'm not seeing three. Now, you have described Alice as doing something called generative construction. What does that mean and why is it important? Well, it's not just important, Phil. It's, it's really, really exciting. So here's what it is. Um, if you are not familiar with parametric technology, parametric is the precursor to generative. You will be an expert in about 30 seconds. But what does parametric technology mean and why is it a big deal? So let's assume that you wanted to draw you know, an object, say a cylinder. You, know, you draw sort of a circle, a circle, and a plane. And then somebody comes along and says, hey, I, I want a bigger cylinder. So you redraw. And a little while later, somebody says, hey, I want a smaller cylinder. You redraw. You've got to redraw the cylinder every time. With parametric technology, you change the parameters, the height and radius, and the tool redraws your object. Kind of useful. Now, imagine that you're, say, designing a car engine or a building, right? And somebody, you know, my boss in Afghanistan walks in the office and says, hey, I want to move the staircase. So I'm thinking, like, drat. I've got to change all the cross-sections, all the elevations, you know, the 3D model. Like, that change ripples through 47 drawings that I had at the time. If your tool's parametric, you simply go to 3D model, move the staircase, and everything updates for you. The way I tend to explain it to myself is the ripple through effect. A change in, in an input variable ripples through your system. Generative means that you're now, as a human, you know, we're, we're good at being lazy. So you're like, well, I don't want to change those parameters manually. Right? I want you, the computer, to change parameters from you know, zero to 100 by you know, half digit increments. And I want you to try all the pipe diameters from like half an inch to one inch or the height column heights from 10 feet to 16 feet or whatever it is. And I want you to give me the answer that has the highest rentable area or the lowest energy requirements or the highest power output or whatever it is. So does that make sense? It does, yeah. Exactly. So this was a big deal in design. BIM which was like a big, you know, step forward for our, our field. Or, and, you know, that's AEC or ACO. But BIM is fundamentally two technologies. It's object-oriented, which means that the software understands that it's a column made of concrete on the third floor. And it is parametric, so that when you move the window, the hole in the wall moves with it. So that's what BIM was, and it was, I think, a big step forward. This has played out, been played out in design over the last 35 years. The first parametric tools actually were coming out in, in the 80s, believe it or not. The reason that, that it was done in mechanical engineering before construction was because buildings are bigger and more complex to model than engines. And so the technology existed. It was the processing speeds that needed to catch up. And that started to happen in, I'd say, you know, 2010-ish. And so that's been played out. This parametric design has been played out. Uh, over the last 35 years. In the last three to five years, we've seen you know, the introduction of generative design, tools like Grasshopper and other tools where you can sort of explore you know, tens of thousands of design options. What's never been done is it's never been done in construction. It's in fact been deemed impossible up to now. And that's what, what Alice is. It's a generative construction tool. You can change parameters, such as the number of cranes, the number of crews, the design. And that's a really cool one. You can upload a new design, copy the rules from the old design, 
and hit resimulate and see the impact of this new design immediately. And so that's what generative means and, and why I think it's it's really exciting. It's a big deal, right? I think it puts us on par with other sort of, you know, cutting edge fields. So that's that's why I'm so excited about it. And I know that generative design has been used, for example, in the automotive industry. Where else have you seen it used? Oh, uh, automotive industry, um, shipping, uh, uh, airplanes, um, anything mechanical engineering, right? There's a company called PTC, Parametric Technology Corporation, uh, that really, you know, invented this stuff, right? And I think they were founded in 1984. Now, Alice started with a really tight focus, Renee. It was the it was the scheduling phase of construction, but more recently. You expanded the business to address the building phase as well. Why did you make that decision to broaden your scope like that? The really exciting thing about inventing something, hacking something out of thin ice that didn't exist before, is that you yourself are a student of the thing that you're building. And so what we started to realize with time was we we thought we were building a scheduler. And at one point, it, it sort of hit me. It was like, wait a minute. It's not a scheduler. It's a simulator. You know, s- small nuance is really, really important. A schedule is, you know, a bunch of bars, tasks, you know, and time. That's right. what a schedule is. A simulation is different because it, it's actually moving, shuffling resources around and actually building your object, you know, building your product, building a building, building an airport, whatever it is, right? And so... The schedule is just a viewpoint, one view of your simulation. The estimate is a view of your simulation. The 4D video that's automatically generated by Alice is a view of your simulation, right? All of these things are side effects of the simulation, if that makes sense. The analytics, the, the, the idle times, the crew utilization uh, uh, graphs, the daily rep- uh, reports, the three-week look at all of these things are just merely side effects or different views of that simulation. And so as we were building it, what we realized was, A, it's not just a, um, a schedule, you know, it's a simulation. B, that um, as we were building it, people would, were, were liking it. They said, hey, this is, this is really great. You know, you guys are really, you know, killing it in the pre-construction phase. But, you know, how do I use it in construction? Because, you know, I, I love the software. I love the, the invention. It's really great. I'm excited about it. I've had people come to me and say, I, I never thought I'd say this, but I like scheduling. You know, and I, that's that really kind of makes me very, very proud. But what people would say is, hey, I, I, I like it in the pre-construction phase, but ultimately I've got to go build it. That's where the value is, right? I, I get that you saved me, you know, time and money by telling me I needed two cranes or instead of three or four instead of three or whatever, whatever the insight was, right? But I now need, you know, the rubber needs to hit the road and you've got to go build it. And so we went down and built it. And it wasn't an easy thing to do, you know, and I don't know if I'm getting a little too technical here, but you know, what you're really doing there is you're saying, hey, this is my original simulation. This is my original schedule that I'm going to go into this with. And halfway through it, I'm going to cut it into two halves. You know, the stuff that's completed, the stuff that's not not started yet, and the stuff that's in progress. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to re-simulate the remaining piece. And the reason that can be tricky is that when I created that remaining piece, I assumed, for example, I assumed I had two cranes, but one of them broke down and now I have one. And so I've got to repropagate that constraint through the remaining part. This is the thing that's such a, a challenge in construction sites. Anybody that's been on a construction site, especially if the job is under some kind of time constraints or, or, or some kind of time pressure um, or budgetary pressures, right? These are the thing that take you two or three weeks. Whereas with Alice, because you set up a simulation, right, you literally can just update, hit the button, and, you know, reprop, oh, there's only one crane. What's the impact if I do nothing? What's the impact if I resequence? What's the impact if I try overtime for steel? What's the impact, you know, so on and so forth. And those are all, you know, take you a couple of minutes. Got it. Okay. I'm curious right now, are you seeing AI being applied to other aspects of construction? And, and if so, I'm, I'm really curious where and why. We are living in the most exciting time in construction you know, since maybe the building of the pyramids and the European cathedrals. Um, over the last two millennia, this is the, you know, renaissance of construction. It happened in 2017. What's happened is that 
I am today convinced, teaching at Stanford, sitting in Silicon Valley, you know, being friends with another, a bunch of other entrepreneurs that are in construction tech, um, what we are witnessing is a there will be a new ecosystem that is coming at us in our field. A new ecosystem where the fundamental value proposition of the general contractor is going to slowly change. And that new ecosystem is going to be based on data. You'll be able to generate lots and lots of options. You'll be able to know who's building what, when, and where. You'll be able to do things like, you know, JIT, just-in-time delivery. You know, you install a wall panel and it immediately orders the sockets, whatever it is that you need, automatically. You'll be able to, you know, access a network of suppliers through an, an automated sort of digitized system. So incredibly, incredibly exciting period. And it really, I think, one of the things that's interesting to note is that the reason it's happening now is not, and this is something that I'm really very, you know, a firm and ardent believer of, but it's not that construction folks are not innovative or lazy or whatever, you know, the, the sort of um, stereotype is. It's simply put because we build, we deal with problems that are bigger and more complex in other fields. Finance was one of the first to get digitized. You know, you tell me how hard is it to digitize a number of accounts, or if I withdraw 10 bucks here, it's got to add it over there. Right? That's relatively easy. Try digitize something like construction. Well, we couldn't do that until we digitized design, and the computers weren't fast enough to do that till 2010. So there's a reason it's happening now, and it's definitely not because folks aren't innovative. It's just that if you have built a $350 million gas refinery, you're burning through $2 million a day at the peak of it. You know, you're going through 2 million documents. I don't think people realize the size and the complexity of what we're dealing with, right? You know, what you asked is, you know, AI and ML – what we're seeing in, in 2017 was when sort of, I think the world collectively sort of realized, at least the venture capitalists suddenly realized like, wait a minute, there's a tipping point. The machines are fast enough to crunch problems this big. The design has been digitized. There's something big that's going to happen here. And that all this money kind of got flooded into construction tech. And if you remember back in 2017, there's a number of these startups that kind of mushroomed up. And so, I mean, it's happening. It's not even you going to see. You're seeing it already, right? It's the digitization of various aspects of the value chain, right? The digitization of the supply chain, the digitization of engineering, of procurement, of, you know, if you look at Autodesk's, you know, purchase of Building Connected, what Building Connected did was digitize, you know, the, the bidding aspect of, of construction. Um, there's lots of other sort of fields that are doing it. And the last sort of piece of the, the puzzle is robotics, right? right? So you're seeing companies like like Canvas or Tybot or, or, you know, Dusty Robotics, right? Like, you know, small applications, right? But you, we're starting there. And what you're going to start seeing is that the fundamental sort of building pieces, and forgive the pun, which is, you know, design, engineering, procurement, pre-construction, construction, like all of these things are getting digitized. And what you're seeing also is robotics are getting developed. And so the interplay between that digital world and the robots is what is going to start happening. And it's just incredibly, incredibly exciting. Tell us, if you could, Renee, what kinds of companies are you working with today and how are they making use of Alice? We work with some of the, the biggest names in the industry. Buig, Parsons, Takanaka, Austin Bridge and Road, a number of these you know, high-end construction companies. Uh, and like I pointed out, we work on some of the largest projects. I think the smallest job we ever did was a, I believe it was a $12 million parking lot. Um, that was really early on. And the biggest job we ever did was a $3.7 billion hospital and everything in wow. between. Yeah. And uh, what we tend to focus on these days is jobs that are about $100 million and up. Right? We've done as low as 50. Jobs that are $100 million and up. And... Um, the impact that you tend to see with Alice is, on average, we save our clients about 17% in construction duration, and we save about 30% in labor and equipment costs. Those are sort of the figures that, um, after sort of you know working on this for you know six years and, and the company form at this point, you know the numbers have kind of converged. So you're doing something new, and sometimes that comes with adoption challenges. When you see those, Renee, amongst your customers, what do they look like, and how do you overcome them? That's a great question, Phil. Um, again, like I said, I, I really don't think that construction is not innovative or they don't adopt technology. Construction folk have, have been burned in the past because I really do believe that for a long time there haven't been great tools. 
you know, I mean, ask any site engineer that's been on a job, right? And they're leaving the, you know, the, the site office at 7, 8 p.m. for the nth time, how great their tools are. <laughs> you know, ask anybody, you know, who's, who's been on a job like, hey, you know, uh, when there's a delay, how useful was your computer in telling you what was the best way out? You know, that, that would elicit a laugh, right? Because I can tell you that, that today's tools are really fundamentally useless, right? Um, and so when it comes to adoption, um, the nice thing about innovation is that it is really, in many ways, a great equalizer, right? And what I mean by that is that, that I, you know, really believe in an egalitarian or, or, or an equal world. And so what you'll see is that, you know, like in every other field and in almost every human endeavor, there are folks that are non-innovative and they don't want to go through. Because innovation, you know, a lot of people use it, but it's, it's, it's difficult. Right? You're, sure. you're doing things that no one's done. You're trying. You're failing. You're iterating. And so even with something like Alice, like it's a software, but the software is only as good as the people using it. It's only as good as the processes that it enables. And so what you'll tend to notice with our clients is that you know they, they'll use the tool and then they go back to the drawing board and they go, wait, like this is really powerful. You know, suddenly I can generate you know, fifty options where before I could barely do one. What does that mean? How do I want to think about this? What does you know? How do I want to you know approach from a risk analysis you know perspective? To answer your question, um, adoption challenges. You know, every field has innovators. You know, every field has people that are willing to push the boundary. And we're so lucky at Alice that we've really interacted with some incredible people, right? Really incredible people that are, are working on some, you know, advanced technologies. And you'd be surprised. The top companies in the world, you know, the names that I named, like, you know, Parsons, Austin Bridgen Road, Takanaka, Wig, they have, you know, advanced research facilities. I, I have been surprised. You know, some of these companies have developed you know, in-house software platforms that, you know, enable parametric, you know, structural design, right, that I've never seen before, right? Like, you know, robotics, you know, research, right, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, you'd be surprised. There's, there's folks out there that are innovating and, and, and they're, you know, they've got their nose to the grinding stone. <laughs> so, so you and I are here in the United States and here the Biden administration appears poised to spend more than $2 trillion on infrastructure. How do you think Alice could help infrastructure-focused GCs to spend American taxpayers' money more effectively? We've seen some of the biggest uh, advantages. I mean, that's infrastructure jobs is where Alice has knocked it out the park. And we sort of pivoted to focus on infrastructure about 13, 15 months ago, something like that. And that's where Alice has, has really, really excelled. The size of the projects, the data you need to run the software, there's a number of factors that contributed to that. But um, Alice has been really effective at running infrastructure jobs. And we've deployed it on, you know, the Parsons $2.6 billion Edmonton Rail. We've deployed it on several, you know, highway jobs in, in Canada, in Texas, in Virginia, you know, in a number of other places. And like I said, you know, generally what you'll tend to see is savings in the order of that 17% of the duration, right? And labor and equipment, you know, substantial improvements in the the cycle times, right? Because what you're doing with Alice is you're figuring out what is the right ratio of resources. That's, that's a big question. People think it's what's the right number. It's actually what's the right ratio. Now, you have said, Renee, that your vision for Alice is to help reduce the cost of construction by 25% globally. So that's a that's an audacious goal. How big a dent do you think Alice can put in worldwide construction costs? Yeah, I really anticipate that will happen in the next, you know, 10 to 15 years. Um, with today's technology, right, with, with what we've built today, um, Alice reduces the uh, construction durations by 17%, labor and equipment by 13%. Uh, it does this by squeezing out an efficiency. And that's why I didn't mention materials. There's not much we can do. You, you need that many materials to build your job. Um, what we can do is reduce, for example, formwork. But um, if you look at you know labor and equipment costs, they tend to be 40% of the total. So today, Alice is saving about 6% on costs. And the fact that you're finishing that job you know, 15% faster, right, which is, say, a month, you know, two months on, on, on a, on a one-year job, that's also you know, improving your profit margin, right, which reduces cost. So today, if you're looking at the system, you're getting somewhere around, in my opinion, 7, 8, maybe even 
right? That you could you could sort of knock off with with the current technology. As you will see, the digitization of the construction ecosystem, the integration across these systems, right, will result easily in an additional twenty five percent, if not more, and that will happen really in the next ten to fifteen years. <laughs> wow. One last question for you, Renee, and it's this. So the construction industry here in the United States is suffering from labor shortage, and many older workers are retiring. Do you think that the accelerating adoption of new technologies in the field will help companies to attract and retain younger workers? Absolutely. Now, there's no question. I think that it will help attract, retain new workers. Uh, something like Alice can also tell you how to build a job with less people. I'd say in 60% of our deployments, that, that question comes up. Right. Well, we don't have additional crews. What do we do? We're building a data center. How do we reduce the number of crews? Right. So, um, the the software will tell you how to reduce the amount of labor that you need, and also the the fact that it's a cutting edge tool or there are cutting edge tools will help attract the new generation of you know, civil engineers to our field. That will happen, or, or I'm seeing it happening. I think the last thing that's sort of interesting is that with a software like Alice. You're also um, saving them knowledge of how to build a given project. That's a big deal because when you look at you know construction companies today, uh, their systems. I'm saying the people, but their systems are just about as smart today as they were a year ago. Right? You know, you, you build three hospitals. Um, the people that have built those hospitals are three hospitals smarter, but your ERP system doesn't tend to be three hospitals smarter. And with, with something like Alice, you can help retain that knowledge through the use of, of the, the Alice recipes and, and other things because you've, you've fundamentally taught the computer how to build a hospital. I mean, that's what you've done. You've simulated it. You've built it 20, 30 different times. Your, your computer's built the hospital 30 different times, right? Or the highway or the bridge or whatever it is. And so you can then go back and say, hey, you've done this three times. Help me analyze what, what we've learned here. And, and the data is, is stored or compartmentalized in a way that makes it accessible and, and reusable. And so your systems become smarter with time. That's so interesting. Well, if, if the people and the technology, if they're both getting smarter together, uh, then I think that's pretty powerful. This has been great, Renee. Thank, thank you so much for the time. I think you've got a great entrepreneurial adventure ahead of you. Thanks so much, Phil. Really appreciate it. There's Renee Morcos, the founder and CEO of Alice Technologies, talking to Phil Carpenter about his AI-powered construction simulation platform. I'm Steve Randall. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Constructive Voices. Don't forget you can rate and review us on your favourite podcast app and follow or subscribe to get the latest episodes automatically. You can also find out more on our website, constructive-voices.com. Don't forget the dash. Join us again next time. And until then, thanks for listening. You're really helping us build something. Thank you, Steve. It was very good to talk to you. Constructive Voices, brought to you by Lewis Access, British-made scaffold towers and access products.